Um, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, I'm going to read from there in just a few minutes. Thus far in this series from 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, there are three major subjects I have skipped over. Uh, I'm not intending to do a verse by verse of 1 and 2 Timothy, but there's three major, uh, there's a couple of other small mentions of things uh, throughout the book, but there's three major subjects I've skipped over. Uh, Paul's teaching on women in general, widows in particular, I've skipped over that. I am going to come back to that. I'm going to spend a couple weeks on this around Mother's Day. Um, there's a, a section, a couple of sections on deacons, elders, bishops, choose what language you want to use there. I have skipped over that for now. I may come back to that at some point. Um, and there's a, there's a section on what it would mean for Timothy to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. I, I'm skipping over that for now. Again, I may come back to that. Um, you can, um, uh, there's an application of that for all of us uh, as far as who we're supposed to be. Uh, but, but, um, but I'm skipping over that for right now. Again, may come back to that. Uh, I promise, I promise uh, to cover those passages on women's, I'm not trying to on, on women. I'm not trying to duck the issue. I, I actually think it's a it's a pretty vital issue for us to talk about in our day, and uh, I'm actually uh, opposite of of wanting to avoid it. I'm actually kind of excited to get there. I I, I want to get to that subject and um, look forward to to considering that together with you. We have been considering throughout this year what it means to be the church, which is why we're focused on First and Second Timothy for now, because Paul is instructing Timothy to organize or to order the church, to set up the church so that it functions well, the church of Ephesus. We've looked at the fact that we are ambassadors, that we are ministers of reconciliation, that our task is to seek to, to help people to be right with God, right with each other, and right within themselves, right? That we, that we all have these three directions of being right with God, of being at peace within ourselves because our consciences are clear, our hearts are right, that that, that, that is part of it, and that we want to be right with one another. We want relationships among brothers and sisters in Christ and our relationships with the outside world, the, the unbelieving world, or the uh, some refer to it as the pre-believing world. Uh, we want our relationships to be right there. So, um, so this is what we've been focusing on. And I believe that this text this morning helps us in all three of these ways. That is, there's a way that it applies to what it means to be right with God, what it means to be right within ourselves, and what it means to be right with the people around us, to be in, in, in right standing with people around us. I'm going to leave it to you to do some of that application. I'm not going to try to do all of that and say, well, here's what it means for you and God. Here's what it means for you and other people. You'll have to, you'll have to sort through some of that. But I want to look at this passage. And, and for the most part this morning, I want to just take some time to talk over the passage. So whenever I do this, there's two things that come to my mind. The first one is, everybody can read. Just don't insult people's intelligence. And that's not my intention this morning. I'm well aware, well aware of the fact that you can read the passage yourself. 
Um, the second thing that comes to my mind is, well, I mean, it's so basic, you know, just to, just to say, well, here's what the text says. And yet, uh, while I think we all know these things, I think there's a helpful reminder that we can, uh, that we can um, profit from uh, as we read this text together. So I'm just going to talk through the text a little bit this morning. And then at the very end, I just want to ask you to consider whether or not there might be something specific that God might want to say to us as the church in our day and age today, okay? So that's why I titled this message a timeless message, because uh, a timeless message, it wasn't a a statement of, boy, this, this message that I'm going to preach is so good, it'll be timeless. It'll be there for all of posterity. For people. That's not the idea I have in mind. It's that God spoke to Paul back then, and what he said back then applies to us today. There's a usefulness for this message today. And I want to ask you to consider whether or not in this text there are three ideas that are central to this text that might speak something very specific to us in the day and age in which we live. Maybe that's something we should consider, all right? So let's read together 1 Timothy 6. I want to read the first 10 verses. 1 Timothy 6, I want to read the first first 10 verses. It was uh, too long of a passage for me to consider putting on the overhead, so I'm hoping you have your Bible with you this morning. I'm going to just read it from the New American Standard. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves... Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles." If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind, and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain, when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So let me, let me divide this, this uh, passage into three parts, and then I'm going to at the end just share what I think the three main ideas are that we really need to consider for ourselves in, in, in our context uh, uh, today. The first one is servants and masters. Servants and masters. Uh, well, let me say, let me just up front say a couple of things that I'm, going, that, that I'm not going to address. Number one, this, this text is not intended to teach that slavery is a good thing and that 
and that um, it should be that way in society. It's not intending to teach that. And I'm not going to touch the, the question that is a, a valid question. It would, be a, it would be a good question to consider, a good question to discuss someday. It's just not, not for this morning. Um, the question, why didn't, why, didn't the, why didn't God just come right out and, and give a command, thou shalt not have slaves? Seems like it would have been simple to do that. Why is that not the case? Okay. Um, and that's a legitimate question to ask. By the way, there are plenty of people, usually there are people that have enough Christianity in them to know what issues to bring up. They, they have a, an axe to grind or a bone to pick with a Christian that has hurt them in the past or with an upbringing that they didn't like or whatever it is. And they will fixate on subjects like this and say, see, the, the God of the Bible is a, and they'll fill in the blank, and one of the things they'll bring up is slavery. Okay? So it, it actually is, in some, for some people, an issue that, that could be profitably considered and discussed. For this morning, however, I just want to consider a couple things that this passage teaches us. And, and, you know, we can kind of roughly say there's principles that we can draw out of this because while we don't live in a system that has masters and slaves, we do live in a system that has uh, often employers and employees, right? And even if you're self-employed, you're providing a service to someone else who is paying you for that service. And so at least for a time, they become your boss and you become their, their employee. You're providing them a service, right? And so, so all of those relationships are still existent today. And this passage, the passage speaks to us. The phrase that it begins with, under the yoke as slaves, this is not meant to provide an entire explanation of slavery. But I think it's at least worth pointing this out. The phrase that Paul uses here, let all who are under the yoke of slavery, seems to be a phrase that is calculated to insert a spirit of compassion into the subject of slavery. He could have just said, all of you who are slaves, but what he said is, all of you who are under the yoke of slavery. And you know what that would have done or could have, should have done? All of a sudden, everyone who owns a slave is confronted with the fact that they are holding a yoke over somebody else. Right? That, that when, a, when a, a, a farmer goes out, we don't do this anymore, but they do in some parts of the world, when a farmer goes out into the field and takes a yoke and puts it on the ox, he does not ask for permission. He puts a yoke on the ox, and the ox is no longer free to roam where he wills. He's going to be teamed up with another one. They're going to be pointed in a certain direction, and they're going to do the will of the one who's driving them. And so the idea here is there's a yoke that is involved in slavery, and we have to face that. And, and just the word leads a person to the conclusion would I, be want, would I want to be under that yoke? If I'm the master, if I'm the owner, right, I'm, I'm forced to consider the possibility that those who are under me are feeling yoked by their obligation to me. And the phrase is, is calculated to, to make me ask the question, would I want that? 
And should I view these people with compassion as a result? Right? So it's a statement of compassion. It inserts a spirit of compassion. It's, it, it's especially in the Christian mind, it would be calculated to say something to us very particular because of Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Take upon you my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, in contrast to the yoke of many masters in the day, which was anything but easy and light, right? So, so there, there is a message here that, interestingly, uh, uh, centuries later, and, and in some cases much sooner, but, but in certain societies, Christians began to latch on to these concepts and said, we got to do something about this system, Something about this system is, is not in keeping with what the gospel would have. Something about this isn't quite right. Um, so, so anyways, this, this phrase is a, is a phrase that is, that is uh, calculated to insert a spirit of compassion into those who consider the subject of slavery and their masters. It was not, obviously, carefully so, it was not inciting revolution. Uh, it was not inciting revolution. It was not inserting the idea of a revolt. But it does seem calculated to insert questioning about this system. Maybe this isn't the best idea. A compassion that was present. The second thing that we need to see here is that slaves, the reality of the system as it was, were as, if they were Christians, right, because, because Paul is writing to Timothy, telling him how to, how to organize the church, how to, how to direct the church. If there are people who are under the yoke as slaves, let them regard their masters as worthy of all honor. That is, don't teach them to rebel, because, they're, because they, are, they are Christians, they are to understand that there is a responsibility they have as believers. They are not to rebel. And verse 1 gives us the compelling reason why. And I just want to pause here for a second and tell you that if we get a hold of this, if we get a hold of this, it can transform your life. You don't have to be a slave to apply this to yourself. The point of the verse is this. They are to regard their masters as worthy of honor for a specific reason. The reason is so that their conduct would do no harm to the name of God and to the Christian doctrine. Let me just take a second and put yourself back then. If all of a sudden Christianity became an immediate anti-slavery movement in the Roman Empire, it would, have been, it would have been stamped out and opposed as quickly as possible, and it wouldn't have been for the sake of the gospel, it would have been for the sake of slavery. And what, what Paul is saying to Timothy in this, in this scripture is, there's something bigger than the societal concerns there are the eternal concerns of whether men and women are going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. The gospel comes first. So don't let Christians take up, don't let the believers take up any cause 
that will make the name of God look bad or will distract from the primary mission of the church to share the gospel. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. My brothers and sisters, if we in our day can grab hold of the idea that the glory of God's name comes first for us, that that comes first for us, and that we want to live our lives in such a way that the Christian doctrine, that is the the, the faith of Christ, would not be spoken ill of, It, it will regulate the way we behave ourselves. You won't need a ton of laws. You'll know the priority that governs how you make your choices. Amen? You'll know the priority. The priority is, I must keep the name of God unsullied. I must. I must guard the reputation of God. And, number two, I must live in such a way that the Christian faith is not spoken against. That no one has a reason to speak against the Christian faith. Okay? And that's what these slaves are called to. Now you say that, yeah, but they're slaves. They're in difficult circumstances. Yes. And all of us are going to be in difficult circumstances somewhere along the line. All of us are going to face difficult circumstances at some point. And the question is, in your difficult circumstances, will the name of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ be the two main things that govern how you handle your difficult circumstances? And that's exactly what Paul calls Timothy to teach the church. These are the two things that matter most. These are the two things that govern the way we conduct ourselves as Christians. They're slaves. Don't teach them to rebel. That the name of God and the Christian doctrine be upheld for those two reasons. Those two reasons. The third thing that we're told here about about slaves is that special mention is made of slaves who have Christian masters. If, by the way, verse 2, you are a slave that has a believer as your master. If you have a believer as your master. There are two things that are important to, to remember here. Paul tells Timothy to tell those slaves to serve their masters especially well. Especially well. The reason for that is twofold. The first reason is because the Christian gospel brings equality among people. It puts all people on the same footing. If you're rich, you need Jesus. If you're poor, you need Jesus. If you're healthy, you need Jesus. If you're sick, you need Jesus. If you're a male, you need Jesus. If you're a female, you need Jesus. We are truly all on level footing. And the temptation here is you step into this Christian doctrine that all of a sudden puts everyone on equal footing, and the temptation would be to say, well, since we're on equal footing, I'm not serving you anymore. And what Paul says is, The fact that we understand that as believers, there is no longer male nor female. That's not a gender statement. That's a value statement. Okay? 
We don't place value on a person's gender. I don't care what the culture has done. We don't say men are more valuable than women or women are more valuable than men. The price that was paid for all of us is the same. Amen. Right? So there's no longer male nor female. There is no longer slave nor free. But don't teach the slaves to rebel. Because that's not the point of that statement. Not the point. The point is that the slave has no less value and the master has no greater value in the eyes of God. They all are of equal standing before God. They're all in the same place. And so... So Paul has to write here and says, because we understand this, because we know this, that we've been put on level footing, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? How does this play out? And let me just tell you, Timothy, make sure that the slaves that have Christian masters don't say, hey, I just want to say thank you to you two in there because you're clicking through this for me. I like forgot about this thing in my hand a long time ago. Um, the, 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 the slaves would be tempted to say, well, since we're Christians now, you're no better than me. You have no right to own me. I refuse to serve you. And Paul says, that's not going to be helpful and it's not going to be healthy. Don't, don't let them get that idea in their heads. Don't let them get that idea in their heads. But it's based on the premise that Christianity would, would almost immediately and instinctively teach people we all need Jesus the same. That means we're all equal. We're all equal. Okay? So that's, the, that's kind of the, the baseline understanding that makes a text like this necessary. Tell them not to rebel, but to serve their masters even, even better. And the reason you should serve them even better is that they are, the word that's used here, they, they partake of the benefit. In other words, it's believers that get the benefit of your service. So if you're going to serve a believer and another believer is going to get the benefit of your service, do it even better than you would do it otherwise because you're, you're blessing a brother or a sister in Christ. So bless them and bless them good. Like bless them all the way. They're your brother, your sister. Bless them, right? That's the idea here. These are, these are people, your Christian masters, who would benefit from faithful and diligent service. They're your fellow believers. Thus, serve them with excellence. Serve them with excellence. All right? Now, I'm going to stop there and move on to the next section. I believe there's an issue involved here that hugely speaks to us today that we need to, that we need to put on the table. I'm going to mention it at the end. Thank you. I'm going to try to remember to do this now. Slaves were to benefit Christian masters. Secondly, verses 3 through 5 turn to false teachers. Something like, Anyone who doesn't teach this kind of sound doctrine is a false teacher, and here's what they're like. And so that's the flow of thought. Paul now turns to false teachers. There's a lot that could be said here, but I want to just really quickly mention six of the outstanding things. Don't get nervous. I'm going to hit these really fast. Six of the outstanding things that he says, to, to, uh, says about false teachers. The first one is he uses the word sound. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words... Sound words. The word sound means to have good health, to be healthy. It means to be well in body. It means wholesome. It means wholesome. Wholesome words. 
The idea is simply this. Please hear me for a second. Good doctrine can in part be tested by whether or not it produces good, healthy fruit. In, in one sense, it's just a very practical, useful, utilitarian thing. Bad doctrine produces bad fruit. And good doctrine produces good fruit. And so Paul is saying something like, if they don't, if they don't teach these kinds of things, they are, not, they are not committed to sound words. They're teaching something that's not committed to sound words. As it's not healthy. It's not going to produce something healthy. If, if the outcome of a teaching is unhealthy, be very suspicious. Be very suspicious. Because sound words should promote spiritual well-being to the hearers. It should promote that. Okay? Secondly, godliness, the word that is used here, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the, doctrines, the doctrine conforming to godliness. Godliness, just really simply, means piety, it means worshipful, it means respectful. That is, in a morally good way. In a morally good way. Part of the problem with false teachers is that they're not advocating things that would, that would help people walk in a pious, I'll use the word religious in the best possible sense of the word, not formally religious, but, but relationship-wise in, in fellowship with God, right? And, and wholesome, morally well, morally wholesome, right? That that, that, that should be part of a mark of true teaching and that false teaching will produce something that leads toward uh, a situation that is morally unhealthy, that is not sound, and that doesn't, doesn't make the person more of a worshipful person, more of one who is oriented towards God. Okay? The third word that he says marks false teachers is, verse 4, he is conceited. He is conceited. Man, this one is a hard one to spot sometimes. It's a hard one to spot. Um, pride is one of the sneakiest sins of all the sins. Pride is sneaky because it masquerades in so many ways. It has so many ways of being able to hide itself. But one of the marks of false teachers, Paul says, is conceit. You know what the, I, I was sitting in my, I was kind of chuckling to myself. You know what the word conceit most literally means? The, the Greek word means to make smoke. What do we say people do? They blow smoke. Right? They're, they're saying one thing, but what they're saying is obscuring a different reality. Obscuring what really is. Right? And that's what conceit is. Conceit is putting itself forward one way while really reserving its private agenda that, that glorifies itself. That's the real thing going on. Conceit. To make smoke. It means to inflate with self-conceit. It's the word pride. It's the word pride. 
So as, I, as I've thought about this, as I've thought about this, and, I, I, and I, I think about it for myself, I think about what it means for theology, I wonder sometimes how many times the, the quality of our arguments, the quality of our arguments actually reflects not uh, a good representation of truth, but our commitment to pride in ourselves. I'm right. I'm right. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think of how many times uh, uh, I have argued with my wife because she doesn't argue with me. I might have argued with her at some time in the past. And the soundness of my arguments were really not so much, if I had taken a second to look at it in the moment, were not really significant to what was going on. The, the, the issue that I was building my fortress over was really not all that important. What was really important is me retaining myself and winning the argument and, and ultimately keeping things where I wanted to keep things. That there's usually, in, in a, in a well-constructed argument, there's, a, there's often a, form, a, a deep form of self-preservation that is present. I don't want to admit about myself what I don't want to admit about myself. I don't want to say the words, I'm wrong. I don't want that, right? Or I could learn from what you're saying to me. We don't want that very easily. What Paul says is, false teachers, by the way, he doesn't say they're dumb. He doesn't say their arguments won't be good. He just says they're conceited. They're conceited. They're proud. They're self-aggrandizing. I wonder how often we claim allegiance to the truth and allegiance to knowledge and understanding, but the real root of our intensity is we're committed to our own beliefs and don't want to give at least some credit to what the other person is saying to us. So, you know, if, I'm, if, I, was, if I was giving a quick example, I, was, I would say, if you put up here uh, uh, the, 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 the most world-renowned um, reformed Calvinist theologian and the most world-renowned um, uh, uh, um, Arminian theologian, one of the things that I think we, wish, we should hear is the Arminian look at the Calvinist and say, I got to tell you that I admire you for all the world. You, you, you have an incredible zeal for and understanding of the sovereignty of God. And man, there is so much value there. Thank you for keeping that message alive in the church. And the, and the reformed person ought to be saying back, man... You know, the way you guys uh, teach the, the, the freedom of people's choices is a very, very important point in the call for men to respond to God and to submit to Him and to be obedient to Him. And your desire is for, for 
unbelievers to come to give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and for believers to submit themselves to the will of God. And those are important concepts, and thank you for keeping those concepts alive. I, I, look them up on YouTube. I doubt you'll get a ton of debates that go that way, right? Where one person has really seen, and not only seen, but communicated the value of what the other person is saying. And thank you for saying it, right? That's a, that's a humble attitude in which we can now have the discussion that, that might be useful to have. Paul says these false teachers are governed by a spirit of conceit. He says, fourthly, the word he uses here is morbid, morbid. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. How many of you know the word morbid means? Where does it come from? When you think of morbid, what's it related to? It's related to death. Right? Whose death? Theirs and everybody that listens to them. They're spreading death. Okay? They have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. I wonder how many times if we evaluated conversations we have. Uh, what did somebody call it the other day? Christians don't fight. They have intense fellowship. Is that what, is that what they said? Intense fellowship? I wonder how many times Christians are having death, having death, having intense fellowship. How many times we would, we would step back and say, we're just really arguing over words, accusing each other. What did you mean? What did you mean? Well, I heard and you said. and blah, blah. It's an argument over words. And the only thing present is death. It's morbid. It's a morbid interest in disputing over words. It produces death in both the speaker and the hearer. Right? And, and Paul warns about that here. It means to be sick. It means to have a diseased appetite for something. The idea is to be healthily, to, to be unhealthily interested in things that are uncertain. Unhealthily interested in things that are uncertain. Paul warns us that this is a mark of false teaching. The fifth thing he says, and I'm not going to spend time on this, he, he says. You have to see that their whole lives revolve around conflict. Look at the words that he uses. Out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. It's just a big fight when these people are around. It's just a big fight. That's all it is. That's what false teaching produces. Antagonism, animosity, right? Conflict, let me just say this very quickly, conflict aversion is not healthy. We have to know when and how to engage in proper conflict because sometimes conflict is necessary. It can't be avoided forever. Some things are worth standing up against. But we also have to know that loving conflict isn't any healthier than avoiding it. Right? Thriving on it isn't necessarily a good thing either. So Paul warns about the unnecessary fights that arise because of false teaching. Interest in controversies and wordsmithing. The sixth thing, last thing I'll mention here, and 
uh, I would be tempted to spend a lot of time here, but I'm not going to, is that one of the marks of false teaching is that, is that these, these false teachers suppose that godliness is a means to gain. That godliness is a means to gain. I mean, well, I'll just stop there. It ought to be enough for us to be able to see through some of the doctrines that have been so prevalent in our day. That, hey, godliness, if you're obedient, will be a a doorway to wealth. Now, I want to say this and I want to say this openly. It is an amazing thing how, how healthy a life of godliness and obedience to God is. I mean, just in the most practical sense, I was in a, in a sheets the other day, paying for, a while back, paying for some gas, and the person in front of me was, was making purchases, and I was just stunned by how expensive things are. And I just thought to myself, man, having freedom from certain things is just financially good for us. Just a financial benefit there, right? That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Whether it's sinful or not is a different issue. Just, wow, that's healthy. Healthy tends to be also good economically, right? I don't want to deny that. I also want to affirm that God is a generous father, and that his blessing makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. And there's a place to say that faithful service to Christ tends to produce certain things. And they're usually things that are good for us. But I want to make this clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ was never intended to be an equation in which obedient service to the Lord Jesus equals a large stock portfolio equals a big bank account. That is, a, that is a doctrine from hell. It is so destructive. Okay? And Paul warns about it. This idea that godliness is a means to gain. Is a means, and he's being specific here about it being financial gain. We're going to see that in a second for, for, a, for a very important reason. Here's the third part of the passage. Verses 6 through 10. It, it, I'm really sorry I didn't change what was supposed to be there. It shouldn't say false teachers. It should say love of money. Love of money. The third section is love of money. So there's actually a gain to godliness. And Paul, Paul acknowledges that. The next verse, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied with contentment. And the point is simply this. It is a means to gain, but not that, that never-filled financial appetite for more money. Godliness is gain in and of itself. Godliness is its own reward. In other words, the idea is that godliness is so good for you in life that it is its own reward. Just just thankfully live a life of godliness, don't care about how much money you have or how, whether or not it, it gets you financial gain, just be thankful that your godly life is what it is because it's just good for you. 
It's good for you. It's the most profitable life. You, you avoid so much sorrow in life by being obedient to the ways of God and staying clear of sin. There's just so much profit to life. It's its own reward. It just pays back so many times, whether it brings you more money or not, makes no difference, right? It's just so valuable. There is actually, what happened here? There is actually, there is actually a gain to godliness, but it's its own gain, especially when we're content as well, when we're happy, when, when we don't have to have material possessions to give us an artificial sense of how much we're enjoying life. Godliness is its own gain, Paul says. The second thing he says here about love of money is that nothing leaves this world with us except our godliness or our works. Our works do follow us. Material possessions aren't coming with us. I don't know how many of you know about this. I was made aware of this. My... My brother, hi, Eddie, if you ever listen to this, I don't think he will. My brother has two jobs. He's a prison chaplain. That's his main job. He's a chaplain in the Baltimore prison system. And he works part-time at a funeral home. Like prison and death. God bless you, you know. Um, uh, I, I had become aware of this, but he's actually been seeing it. He does two things at the funeral home, <clears throat> a lot of two things. He's just kind of there to do general office stuff if they're needed. But he also transports bodies when they need to be transported. That's, that's one main thing. The second main thing is, is um, he preaches a lot of funerals for people that don't have anybody else to preach funerals. So it's an outreach kind of a thing for him to, you know, Present the gospel to people that aren't going to hear it lovingly, politely, respectfully, but at a funeral at an appropriate time, right? So he does those two things. Um, there are trends. Believe it or not, everything has trends, including funerals. Funerals have trends as well, things that become in vogue, especially in certain cultures. Um, especially in the Hispanic culture, uh, South American Hispanic culture, uh, a trend for funerals is to pose the body outside of the casket. The body's not in the casket. The body is posed. So whatever the person was really into in life, for example. So the funeral home will set up a lounge chair and a big screen TV with a soccer game on. And the, the person will be dressed in their, so their favorite soccer team's kit, like they're a fan. And they're sitting in their lounge chair and they're watching TV in this, you know, in their pose. And then when the funeral's done, they take the body and they bury him. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, in some cases, because things are so important, you know, when they actually put the body in the casket, then they'll put the, the soccer gear, the, the TV or the, the, the jersey or the soccer ball in the casket with them. And here's the reality. None of it's actually going with them. None of it's going with them. You can put it in the casket, but they're not taking it with them. Right? What Paul says is, nothing that you have in this world is going to go with you. None of it's going to go with you. None of it's significant. It's nothing is going to go with you. Your works, your godliness, that will go with you. Right? 
But none of the possessions that we think of that, that, that are such a big deal to us, none of them are going to go with us. The third thing he says is that these people that are so focused on gain are people that fall into temptation. And here's the interesting thing about this. Very quickly, the word temptation, the way it's worded here means this. Not, it does not mean they fall into a temptation to sin. It means that they are living in a continual engagement with temptation. That's huge. How many of you have enough to deal with with occasional temptations that come to you? It is not a good place to be when you have put yourself in a place in life where you are oriented in a constant way toward temptation. Now, in a modern way, we can say, listen, you, you get caught up in something like pornography and you will live with a temptation that's with you all the time. It will live in your house. It will be going with you to work. Okay? And what Paul says here is, love of money is the same kind of thing. You will live in a spirit of temptation all the time. Why? Because everything you don't have becomes an opportunity for covetousness and for greed and for the wrong kind of ambition and all kinds of sin arises from people who want what they cannot have or do not have. Right? Paul says it's not a temptation. It is entering into a life of being tempted. And man, that's a miserable place to be when you know that every moment of your life is a battle with something that you wish wasn't there. So Paul says, you better deal with this love of money thing. You better be aware of this love of money thing. It is a temptation. It's a state, not an event. The fourth thing he says, is he, the King James says, love of money is the root of all evil. The idea is, it is a root, it is a root, it is a root that brings all kinds of temptation with it. It's not the only root of sin, but love of money is not the only root from which all evil springs, but it is the root from which all manner of evil comes. All kinds of evil comes because there are people who are in love with wealth and want more and want more. All right. That's the text. Those are, the, those are some of the, the outstanding specifics of the text in the three parts, okay? Slaves and masters, false teachers, love of money. So I'm, I'm reading this text, praying over this text, and I just want to ask you to consider something as a possibility for, with me this morning. As I'm considering this text, it dawns on me, Lord, what is the main issue in each parts of this in each part of this text? Uh, I'm going to submit this to you. You'll do with it whatever you want, okay? But I think this is worth considering today, given the world in which we live in. Here's what it seems like to me: as Christians in our culture, as Christians in our culture. I wonder if there's not three things we could pull out of this text that might really challenge us in the way that we live today 
in what we're called to today as believers. Here's what it looks like to me. It looks to me like the first section on masters and slaves, slavery, is primarily warning against a spirit of independence and self-determination. Just because you're born again doesn't mean you're not under authority. Warn these Christian slaves not to develop a spirit that is so independent, so committed to self-determination, I'll do what I want. Warn them about that. Warn them not to go down that road. It's not an appropriate spirit for Christians to have. Let me just pause here for a second. When we come back to that subject of women and, and marriage, relationships, please hear this. You know, we, we absolutely live in a world that rejects the notion of anyone having any will in my life that, that is anything but I can do whatever I want. And let me just say, this isn't, matter, this isn't a matter that just women need to take into, an, into account. Men, please hear this. The, the, when the scripture talks about marriage, it says to us that, that men, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Would you please take a second with me to remember that the key moment, the key moment, do you know when, let me say it this way, that the cross, the cross, the power, the victory, the accomplishment of the cross was not actually settled at the cross. I mean, all of it was done at the cross. But please hear this. The issue was actually settled in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus sorts through, will I do it or will I not? And he cries and he weeps and he begs the Father and then he submits to the will of one who is above him. There is no one who is not under authority. And I'll tell you what, submitting to someone that acknowledges no authority in their life is one of the most galling, frustrating, tormenting things you can ask a person to do. So men, we'd better have the idea in our firmly planted in our minds that this is not just a servant thing or, a, or a, a woman thing. This is a Christian thing. That that stubborn spirit of independence and self-determination is one that has to break in us. Because if not, we become tyrants. We are to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And please hear this. This is one of the key ways I believe that Christians will be called to be countercultural in our day. While the rest of the world goes one direction, we will continue to proclaim what it means to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That I don't have a right to myself. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I must glorify God in my body and in my spirit that belong to him. 
that this is a vital issue of our day and the whole world is trying to indoctrinate you to accept a mindset that is something different than. It says, you don't have to put up with that. You got the right, you can, you that, and, and wants to teach you to let your life revolve around you again. The issue here is will Christian men and women who happen to be slaves receive the teaching that says you have to submit. You have to respond. Okay? That spirit is wrong. A rebellious spirit is wrong. The second thing, false teachers, that I believe is so pertinent to our day is the question, are we so proud in our knowledge that we are willing to destroy everything around us because we're going to prove we're right? And we know. The pride of our knowledge, the pride of our knowledge, I know, I know. At the heart of this teaching on, on false teachers, Paul says something like, they reject sound words, they reject everything God says, they teach things that produce destruction, and they do it because they're puffed up in their own heads thinking they're right. They're so certain they're right. It doesn't matter how many things are being destroyed and falling apart around them. They're right. And they're going to fight it out to the bitter end. That pride in our knowledge. How many times have we looked at the person across from us and thought to ourselves, I know what you said and I know what you meant when you said it. And so the offense is immediately up, because I know, I know, I know what you're saying. I know, I've got you pegged. I know who you, I've got you figured out. And the spirit of generosity between two people goes away, because we're so certain we know how it is. Man, I got it figured out. The third thing is, the heart of Paul's teaching on, on love of money is the obvious one. It's the, the warning against materialism. And I have, I have often marveled. I know it hasn't always been this way, but I have often marveled that our dollar bills, all of our currency has in God we trust printed on it. I think that is so ironic. I think that says so much that we don't always realize. I think our culture really does trust in wealth. <laughs> and I think with stamped on our money, I think it actually might say something to us about what it is that we really put our hope in. We build our wealth because we think we can find security there. And the reality is, your wealth is not a money, is not a, is not a God that can keep you safe in times of trouble. It is not that. Really, there is only one God in whom you can trust. And your money's not it. And man, I, listen, I know I've made a joke out of things. I, I, there are some things you know, I, I've, I've, I've used as sermon illustrations. You know, I see a BMW or an Audi drive down the road. And I want to tell you this. This is absolutely the truth. I can appreciate quality, and I can look at something and say, man, that's a... That's a well-designed thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But dear God, 
don't ever let the love of possessions get a hold of my heart and begin to affect who I am and the decisions that I make. Don't let the love of those things get a hold of my heart. Because materialism will absolutely be the doorway to sin in your life. I really believe that this passage, if we just step back and look at the principles that are involved, we would say, man, this passage has a lot to say to us as American Christians in our culture today. It will cause us to ask questions about, about our independence, about our, our attitudes toward, toward whether or not there should be any authority over us. That, that it will absolutely teach us something about how much we think we know and our pride of our knowledge and how much it will say to us about our orientation toward possessions and the love of money in our lives. A culture that is given over to material possessions. And I think the call at the end of the message that, that, I, that I take is something like this. Will I keep my heart and my mind so fixed on Christ and so oriented toward the gospel that I refuse to allow myself to be consumed by this world? I have to live in it, but I don't have to be absorbed by its spirit. I do not have to be absorbed by its spirit. I don't want to be of it. So Lord, keep me oriented if it means I have to live a countercultural life, then Lord, I'm willing. If it means I have to look different from the world around me, I think sometimes we we have taken this Christians are different. We've taken it to wrong places. We've taken it to to certain behaviors, or to, and I think I think in the end, the spirit that we live by is the thing that God really wants to have us be different from the world around us in. And that will then determine how we live. Don't let yourself get caught up in the spirit of the world, the message that the world tells you should be who you are. You be who Christ has called you to be for his sake, to his glory, for the sake of his gospel. Amen? We're different. We're the church. We're different. We're the church. We can't get sucked in to what the world says should be. Can we just bow and, and close in a, in a word of prayer together this morning? You can take a moment just to say, okay, Lord, um, where is it that I might be challenged this morning? Is there a, a situation of surrender that I'm not really keen on right now, that I don't want to I don't want to yield myself to, and I need to. I need to. I've been asserting my rights and proclaiming my, my refusal to stay in a place that, Lord, you actually want me to stay in. There may be some form of that that applies to you today. You may have to struggle with, Lord, have I adopted ideas that I'm so certain of that are bringing a distraction from the gospel, destruction to people around me or to myself. I find myself proud in my knowledge and combative because of it.
rather than Christ-like because of it? Okay, Lord, help me with that. Lord, I have a strong attraction to the things that I want, and the pull of materialism has a hold on me, and I, I'm overly prioritizing my, my wealth, trusting in that for my future. Lord, I need to ask you to forgive me and reorient my thinking. However he would have you to respond, I would encourage you to do so this morning. Just take a moment before the Lord today. So, Lord, help us to be a distinct people, uh, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people who understand who we are, who know our identity in Christ, who embrace it, and who are willing to live it out, even when it means uh, swimming against the tide. Give us courage like Daniel, Lord. Give us courage like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Give us courage like Joseph, Lord. Give us the strength of conviction to be men and women devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ who are willing to represent you in this world at all cost. Lord, help us to bring it down to the places where we live, those who are closest to us. Lord, to bring to bring the cross of Christ, the, the truth of the gospel, the reality of what it means to represent the Lord Jesus. Help us to bring it right down into our workplaces, into our homes, into our relationships, Lord, to bring it down where the rubber meets the road and to live it out in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for being here this morning. We'll look forward to seeing you next week.